notes, and I'm saying this by faith, that you do take notes because towards the end of this message, you're going to get a couple of ideas or a couple, I'm going to give you some concepts that by God's grace are going to change you or have the potential to change your direction. Um, so we're talking about the tale of two prophets, and we're doing a, a sort of a survey in two prophets in the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's, you're going to learn a little bit about that today. This is stuff that happened before Jesus came. And how God, the Old Testament is basically how God interacted with the world, and God chose uh, a people, and out of this people to, for himself, he committed them his word, but he also spoke to them through prophets. And two of the prophets that he used in the Old Testament was a guy named Elijah, and Elijah had a, uh, a student who would follow him, and his name was Elisha. So say it with me, Elijah, Elijah. and Elisha. Elisha. Say they sound the same, but they're two different people. All right, so Elijah, we, last we left off, we've been walking through Elijah, and he was on the mountain, he took off. Elijah just did a great miracle, had just been through a crazy experience, and then he ran off and, hi- and started hiding, and he hid, in, uh, he went down to the mountain of God, he literally ran to Arabia, that's where he ran to, and uh, he was one of those things where, I can't take it anymore, I don't want to do this anymore, I've had it, I want to leave, I want to run away, anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You ever feel that way? I, I feel like running away from home. I don't know where I'm going to go, but I feel like running away from home. And so we talked about last week what God, how God ministered to him, and that even when Elijah was faithless, the Lord was faithful to him. He ministered to Elijah while Elijah was running, and that's how good God is. He'll minister to you even in your own messed up running, I'm crazy, I can't do it anymore, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm lost. I can't. Whatever, whatever your circumstances are, God will minister to you in the midst of that. And you should never forget that. God will minister to you in your brokenness. He'll minister to you in your confusion. He'll minister to you wherever you are. Even if you're on the run, Jesus will minister to you. And so he shows up and the Lord ministers to him and he doesn't give Elijah a speech. Because we think sometimes, you know, we, that God's going to show up. He's going to give you a speech. He's going to call all this stuff out. He's going to say, you know, Elijah, da, 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 you should be doing this. What's your problem? But he doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't give Elijah a sermon. He doesn't give him a speech. He doesn't give him a correction. He simply asks him a question. And he says, Elijah, why are you here? Do you know what's going, what is happening with you that's brought you to this place? And it wasn't so much of an idea where God didn't know what was going on with Elijah. He's trying to get Elijah to understand what's going on with himself. What's motivating you, Elijah, to run away from the things that I've called you to do? What's motivating you, Elijah, to leave the things that I've set before you? And so the Lord shows Elijah a fire, and the Lord's not in a fire. He shows him the wind, and he's not in the wind. He does an earthquake, and the Lord's not in the earthquake. And then there's a small voice, and the Lord was in the voice. And so he's showing Elijah that I'm not in the noise, Elijah. You're looking for me in all of the noise. I'm not in the noise. I'm in the still, small voice. I'm in the quietness. I speak through this. I'm not speaking to you through all of this noise. Yes, amen. So a lot of times we, hear, we, we, we get lost and we lose God because we're listening to the noise. We're listening to what other people think, what other people say, what circumstances say, what situations say. The issue is it has nothing to do. A lot of people I know get caught up politically and get caught up socially with all of the news media and everything that goes on in the news. And every Christian starts freaking out. Oh my gosh, you know, new, North Korea's got a nuclear weapon. You know, whatever, you know, people freak out of that stuff. I'm, I'm just telling you that's what happens. But the issue isn't whether or not what the noise is, is in the culture. The issue is what does God say? Has the Lord said, you know, what is he saying? What is God saying in the midst of the circumstances? Not what the circumstances are saying, but what does the Lord say? That's the issue. And he tells Elijah to get back on track. He says, Elijah, I want you to get back on track. Go back and do the thing that I set in front of you. Go back and start doing the thing that I told you to do. Stop listening. Say it with me. Stop Stop listening to the noise. And start listening to his voice. And in the process of listening to his voice, getting back on track, he told him to go and serve others. If you really want to get technical, he told him to go operate in the anointing. He told him to go anoint three people. Haziel, Jehu, and ultimately Elisha, who we're going to talk about. 
He said, go and release the anointing. Go and minister. The anointing is a transference of the Holy Spirit. So when he tells them to go and anoint, he's telling them to transfer or release this ministry to these people. Release power, release whatever, God's purposes over their life. But the essence of it is, is to minister to others from a spiritual perspective. So one of the ways you get out of your rut, you get out of your depression, or in Elijah's case, get out of the cave. Elijah's hiding in the cave, right? That's where he was. Doesn't, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. What are you doing here, Lord? Oh, you don't understand. You don't understand. It's really bad. You know? So the Lord says, okay, listen to what I'm saying, not what everybody else is saying. Go back and do what I started telling you to do and start ministering to others. No matter how bad it is for you, there's somebody worse. Did you know that? There's somebody in a worse predicament than you are. And so find that person and minister to them. And not only that, but as a believer, one of the things we have is what we go through, we carry. So when you gain victory over an area or you've gone through something, you now carry the victory of that. I don't know if you're aware of that. Jesus, when he brings you through and he brings you into, you're not there as a visitor. You're there as an occupant. So if God has brought you out of or through difficult, God breaks you through in a financial situation. Anybody ever had that happen? You didn't know how it was going to happen, but God brought victory. You're not there as a spectator. You're there as an occupant. That's your territory. You now carry breakthrough in that area. You see this a lot with healing ministry. Healing ministry is all about breakthrough. We see people healed of cancer. We see people healed of this. We see people healed of that. But we haven't seen them healed of this. Why? We haven't broken through in that area. I, come, I approach healing. Like we've broken through in that. What do you got? You got a lung problem? Oh, man, we've seen six people healed of that. This is going to happen. Bam. Because I own that. This church owns that. We broke through that area. This is now ours. We're not visitors or spectators. We're occupants. That's how it works. The kingdom is the same thing. The devil wants to tell you that, you know, you had it, now you don't have it, you had it, then you don't have it. God says the gifts and callings without repentance, he gives it to you. So, like, if you've had a financial situation, and you're having one now, and I'll speak from my own experience, like how God ministered to me one time, oh, God, and the Lord's like, have I broken you through before? And I'm like, yeah. Then go stand in that place of authority and operate from that. And that's what actually started happening. I was like, wait a second. Jesus has never failed me. Every time I've sought him, he has delivered me and brought me through. So I'm going to go and stand in that position, and I'm going to live from that place. And lo and behold, everything changes. It's an alignment issue. But what you say this with me. What I have broken through, I now carry. That's right. You ever see me do healing? There's some people here who have been healed of cancer. Somebody's like, I got cancer. I'm like, go. I always like, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna pray for you. But I'm, if I see those people in the room, I bring them over and get them to lay hands on them. Why? Because they've had healing and that ability in that. You carry it. It's an aroma. You've been through it. You're carrying this. This is spiritual stuff I'm talking to you about, not earthly. I'm talking about spiritual dimensional things that we actually have power in. So he tells them, get back on track, go minister to others. And then he tells them to go and find Elisha. So Elisha was going to be Elijah's successor. And so we need to see some things that we're going to see some comparisons between these two people. And what you're going to see is that these men are just like you. And what you're going to see is that, say this with me, if Jesus used them, he can use me. And somebody's like, oh, you're talking about Elijah, Kevin, a venerated saint of the church. You know, like Elijah's one of those guys we hold up as like the supreme epitome of perfection. He was anything but. It tells us actually two places in the New Testament that Elijah was just like you. He was a man just like you, or, just, or, or mankind just like you. Elijah needed to be developed. We'll see a little bit of that next week. Elisha was different than Elijah. Elisha is revealed in the context of a family. So what we know about Elijah, when Elijah came on the scene, there was no mention of his family, there was no mention of his background, only the city that he came from which is a probable indication that Elijah, Elijah came from a broken family. He probably was fatherless. He, somehow there was something missing in his background. Otherwise, the Lord would have accentuated it for us to understand. Everything about a prophet is prophetic. When every time you're studying a prophet, or any time you're studying the prophets, everything about their life, everything about their name, the cities that they go to, the people they associate with, there is a prophetic message there. Everything about them is prophetic. Prophecy is foretelling and forthtelling. It is calling what is as though it were not, and it is also calling things into being that don't even exist. Prophecy, and God has anointed his people with a prophetic anointing. 
We are an apostolic generation. We're sent ones, but we also carry a prophetic power. Thank you. One person, wherever you are. <laughs> Elijah went from there and he found Elisha. So here we see Elisha as his family. He has a father named Shaphat. So we see that Elisha, Elijah didn't have a mention of his family, but Elisha's going to mention not just his father, but his father and his mother. So Elisha comes from a family. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. There's another prophetic indicator. So we have a prophetic indicator that he has a family, and we're going to learn about his dad's name, and that tells you a lot probably about his household. Then we see this number 12. This number 12 is in relationship to men. Elijah, if you were here with us when we did Fire on the Mountain, uh, is that a Charlie Daniels song? No, that's a different, different story. But when Elijah, Elijah laid down 12, 12 stones in relationship to the Spirit of God. 12 represents government. So Elijah laid down heaven's government. Here we see man's government. So we see Shaphat and Elijah, Elisha is plowing under his father and under a yoke that relates to an order or a structure that came out of his household. He was driving the 12th pair. Elisha comes up to him. Elijah comes up to him and puts the cloak over him. So Elijah comes up, takes off his mantle, and covers him with the mantle. Next slide. What does this tell us? Well, Shaphat, the name Shaphat means judgment. So this probably gives us an indication that Elijah, Elisha, comes out of a family where his father was probably pretty strict and probably pretty rigid. And there was probably a lot of legalism and a lot of rules going on there. So because we, we see his name being judgment, we see this number 12, which is government or order. So it was probably a very ordered household. And then the other indicator that, the, that this wasn't a, probably of the most healthiest place for Elisha was that he left immediately. He just left. He's like, I'm out of here, man. I'm gone. And so what I want you to know, so there's a lot of legalism, probably not very pleasant environment. He left right away. Elijah liked the quiet life. What I want you to know is whether you come from dysfunction or brokenness, Jesus will use you. It doesn't matter if you come from an intact family where everything's perfect and in order and structured just so, or whether you come from brokenness. God holds, come on, yeah. He holds both of these guys up as almost mirrors to our own experience. We either come from a household where everything's in order and everybody's got their this and that, and everything's just perfect, just so, or we have this other household where everything's just shot out and nothing's there at all. Can I get a witness? God uses both. So that's, that's one of the mirrors he's pointing up to us. I've used both of them. So Elijah seemed to like the quiet life. So we're going to compare these two. So Elijah, every time we find Elijah, he's doing some great work of God, and then he's going away and he's hiding for a while. He liked it nice and quiet. He liked crickets, okay? He liked peace. He liked it like that. Elisha, as we're going to see, Elisha liked the action. Elisha pursued the action and wanted to be right in the middle of the action. So Elijah's coming from brokenness. He actually wants a home life. Both of them are going to encounter widows. Elijah stayed with the widow during the famine, and he literally stayed there for a while. Like, he liked the home life. Wow, this is great. I never had a house. I'm here. This is wonderful. Hey, this is kind of cool. He had almost had to be thrown out. Elisha, you couldn't get him to stay in a house. The widow had to go find him because he was never home. Crazy story. She built a room on the house for him, and he never stayed there. He didn't want to be home. He wanted to be out doing his thing, whatever. Elijah liked it on his own. Both had issues. So we could say that Elijah has social anxieties. He didn't like being around people. <laughs> Read the story. This is Elijah, prophet, man of God. He had issues just like you have issues. Just like all of us had issues. God will use you in spite of your issues. Elijah didn't like to be around people. We would term that as a social anxiety. Okay? Elisha had bonding issues. He probably didn't have a very healthy relationship with his father because his father's accentuated as being a judge. His father was probably harsh, critical, demeaning, all of these things, demanding of him in a, such an extreme way. He had bonding issues. We don't see, we see Elijah having a hard time bonding with anybody. You're going to see he has a hard time. He like, you know, he doesn't, he's always off on his own, making noise, all this stuff. But what I want you to know is that Jesus will do amazing things with you in spite of your issues. That's the point. He'll do amazing things with you in spite of your issues. One of the things the Bible is blunt about is its honesty. It will show people just as they are. You know for certain no man wrote that book. When you read the stories, like if David had written the story, David wouldn't be murdering somebody and committing adultery and then doing all of these really wicked things on the side. 
He would have been like, I was a perfect dude, man. I was a man of God. Oh, let me tell you some stories. You know, kind of like preachers do, I guess, sometimes. They're like, I was awoken up. I was in deep in study at 12 o'clock in the morning. And I was awoken by a phone call. And I picked up the phone. This is the Reverend Doctor. How may I help you? You know, we tell these stories like there's no fault or blame, no, no failures within, within the leader at all. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. So the power, so here's the thing. Jesus will do amazing things in spite of your issues. You should celebrate that right now. Because it's not about you. You say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, welcome to the party. That's the point. Jesus, you don't know what you're doing, but Jesus does. That's why it's a partnership. We're in partnership with him. So the power of deliverance in the New Testament. This is a, just, a, just a diverging point. In the Old Testament, they had no power to deal with their issues. None at all. They were what they were because why? Jesus had not broken through, the veil had not been torn, and the Spirit had not been sent. All of those things are now available to us in the New Testament. Christ has rent the veil. The veil of separation is gone. The heavens were opened at His baptism, and the Spirit of God has been sent. So the fulfillment of God's encountering man in the, fulfill, in the full, fullness of, the, of ways has been met. And so we have the ability to be set free from crap that we carry. Pardon my French. Somebody's going to, you said, pastor said crap. Oh, no. I'm already correcting myself, so thank you. I'm, I'm editing myself as we go. Edit that. Anyway. So we have the power to be, because really what it is, is it's junk. If you really want to get honest, what you carry and the dysfunctions that happen within us are really going on at the levels, at the deepest levels. It's junk. And it's more related to the, to the word that I just used, which I won't use again. But it's more related to that. Most Christians are taught to shine all that stuff. We hide that so deep within us behind this false person, this false perception, and then everything goes sideways and we wonder, what happened to him? Well, it was there all along. It's a rooted issue that was undealt with. We're, we're famous at cutting, thank you, we're, cut, we're famous at cutting trees and cut the tree down, cut the branches down, but if we don't deal with the root, the problem's still there. We have to deal with the root. And people have been victimized, they've been traumatized, they've been filled with all kinds of false beliefs, all kinds of crazy things that go on inside of them that are contradictory. Forgiveness is a great one. Anybody, we talk about forgiveness and we talk about forgiveness as Christians all day because I've met so many people that have the knowledge of forgiveness, yet they themselves can't forgive. Because forgiveness requires deliverance just as much as it requires knowledge. I'm telling you the truth. It requires a spiritual releasing that is oftentimes we are incapable of doing without either the assistance of, the, of another person or without the knowledge of it ourselves. You can't release them. That's why you can forgive somebody in your mind, but the emotions are still there. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, all of you do. You know, like, oh, and then we condemn each other. This is my favorite. So this is why we've got to blow up some of this stinking thinking within the church, and we've got to bring it into reality. Because we end up pointing fingers. Well, Marty, if you've really forgiven that person, you wouldn't be struggling with it the way that you are. That's a lie. Thank you. Who told you that? You know, that's how we act. And then, we, then the enemy will help condemn you. If you've really forgiven that person, why, do, why every time their name is mentioned, do you, like, cringe? You know? Why do you have visions of running them over? I mean, what, what, why is that there? Because it requires a deliverance. Deliver us from evil. That's what's available to the Christian in the New Testament that was not available. The, the Lord's Prayer is a prophetic declaration. It's a prayer. It's an outline. It's all of those things. But at the same time, it is a declaration of the availability of what is, to, what is given to the believer. The name of the Father. The identity of sons and daughters. The provision that is promised. God's heart that heaven would come to earth manifested by the Spirit. God's heart that we be delivered from evil. Well, what is that, exactly does that mean? It means the pains, the traumas, the hurts. The deliverance from evil is not an external. The enemy uses what is in you against you. You've been wounded, you've been hurt, you've been abandoned, whatever it may be. And somehow, you, you, even as you go forward, there's something that you just can't get free of, no matter how hard you try. You can wish it away, you can pray it away, you, can read, you can't read it away. None of that stuff happens without a process of deliverance. It's a lost art in the church. That's why we, what's replaced deliverance in the church is counseling. Psychosomatic. Let's send them to councils. We've created this world of Christian counseling. Well, if it was in council, we'd all be free. Problem is, is it's not in counseling. 
Promise is it's deep within the soul. It's embedded in the mind, the will, and the emotion. It's not an issue of knowledge. If it was an issue of knowledge, my gosh, we would all be free. But there's a problem. There's something embedded in us. And what does that look like? Well, I hope to do somebody's going to say, do that seminar, Kevin. Because every time I talk about it, Alicia's here is going to throw something at me. Like, do the seminar, Kevin. So I want to do a seminar eventually on inner healing and deliverance. So, and it talks specifically about that, what you deal with. What, what is hanging you up? Your ancestral sins, things that, have ha- things that you've done, then there's things that traumas that you've in- have happened to you as a child. You carry traumas from childhood, and you know you can't get rid of it, man. Some of you were abandoned as a child. And you're like, why do I have abandonment issues? I'm so far removed from that because something was embedded. They call it point of inception. Something was incepted in you when you were a child. That's why Jesus said if you offend a child... It is worse for you. You may as well put a millstone around your neck. Why? Because there's something that happens to us. Our cognitive development, as they would say, has not happened yet. And so children are impacted in a way at that age. And that's exactly where the, child, where God, where the enemy's trying to do is he's trying to traumatize children all the time. That's a lot of times we carry stuff from things that happened to us 20 years ago. And we're like, why is that there? I could tell you my own story. Say, how do you know this? Well, number one, I'm a practitioner. And number two, I've experienced it myself. If you've experienced inner healing and deliverance, there's nobody going to tell you it's not real. Nobody. (laughs) Because I know who I was before I had it, and I knew who I was after I had it. And I'm completely different. Completely. So if there's one area that God has thrown me into the ring, every time I try to get out of it, he keeps throwing me back into the ring of inner healing and deliverance. So without further ado, I do know what I'm talking about. So next slide. I don't mean that to boast because I don't boast above what he's not given me, but I know I know what I'm doing. What's that? You're a witness. That's right. Some of you have already had inner healing with me, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. So that's the point. So and it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's amazing, it's transformational, it's all of that and more. And that's what God has for us. He, has, he does not, it is an affront. This is what the Lord told me. The enemy mocks me. My, he tells me that my blood means nothing. You be our sons and daughters, but he'll keep you as a slave emotionally for the rest of your life. He'll keep you as a slave generationally for the rest of your life. Is that not an affront to the cross? Is that not a, a mocking of the gospel? It's a mocking not just of you. You say you're a son and a daughter, but you're my slave. I'm slave to no one. I have spiritual authority. Yeah, really? Why are you bound? Why, why, why can't you get free? Why are you just locked up? All of this stuff, whatever it may be, you know what, you're ta- what I'm talking about. Why does fear dominate you? Why does the fear of man, why does intimidation, why does circumstance, what, why does this happen to you? Why is this the pattern of your life if indeed you've been given victory? What is the problem here? Well, I can assure you the problem's not you. There's another problem that's going on that's spiritual, and the enemy wants to do nothing more than to suppress that. He doesn't want the church in knowledge. He'd rather have you shiny, happy people, but you're still his slaves. Coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. That's right. Until you're free, nothing else is going to change. So, anyway, I'll move on to that. Jesus chooses the broken, and Jesus chooses the ordinary. This is the message of Elijah. He chooses a broken, and he chooses the ordinary. Elijah was an ordinary guy. Did you know that? He worked a Joe job. He spent his days staring at the rear end of two oxen. How'd you like that job? Your whole job every day is watching these two ox going up and down the field. That's it. Somebody says, that sounds like my job. That sounds exactly like what I do, staring at somebody, looking at somebody's backside all day. So he's an ordinary guy who worked a Joe job. Say this with me. Ordinary work is not always pretty, but it is necessary. Jesus uses ordinary work. This is important. He calls us from ordinary work. Ordinary work change your, changes your heart. Just had this conversation with my beloved son, whom I love very much, yet he's a teenage child, teenage young man, I should say, who challenges us in, very, in oh so many ways. And so I'm trying to get him to take stuff out of the car. And he's like, I don't want to take this out of the car. Why do I? have to take this out of the car. I don't want to. Anybody got a teenager? You should know that. Exactly. So I'm, I'm explaining to him. I said to him, welcome to the planet, son. Welcome to the world where people do what they don't want to do. Welcome to the real world. 
Okay, we all do stuff that's not we don't want to do. And I was explaining to him, this is the context of the family. We do this because we're part of a family. This is what it means to be part of a family. We serve each other, right? So again, that's the laboring point. But, our, but one of the things work does is it trains us to do what we don't want to do. Most of you work jobs, you really, if you had a choice, that wouldn't be the job you wanted to work. Most of the times your employers ask you to do things that you really don't want to do, but you do it anyway, Right? Because it trains you. God uses it to train you. It brings us into something called submission. High principle of the kingdom is submission. Submission means you do what you don't want to do just because our Father said so. He would do it because He said so. No other reason. That's what obedience means. For no other reason other than the fact that He said it. That's it. And we don't have to have understanding in order to give Him obedience. So ordinary work trains us. Faithfulness is proven. Jesus says this, if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? A lot of Christians, here's the two worlds of the gospel, here's the two worlds of Christianity. The majority of the camp, which I would exclude this church from, but the majority of the camp believe God for nothing. 80%, I would dare say, and I'm probably being generous, 80% of Christians believe God for nothing. They have no desire to believe him for future, for destiny, for purpose, for identity. They believe God for nothing. I didn't say they weren't skilled and they weren't capable. They're probably very skilled and capable, but they're not aligning their skill and capability with him. They're not believing him for what it is that he has, he has said. That's the majority of the, of the church, unfortunately. The other side of the church is that they believe God for something, but they're not really seeing the fullness come or there's a delay or there's all these different confusing elements that are attached to that. One of the elements is, is because you've not been faithful in what is another person's. Therefore, it cannot be committed to you. This is a big thing. This is, again, I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I operate from a ministry standpoint. I spend a lot of time in that world trying to understand what God's doing, what he wants to do, and how it is. Big problem with a lot of young pastors, and I'm all for church planning. If a guy feels like he wants to plant a church, I'm like, go for it. But a lot, big problem with people, because you think it's easy, go right ahead. <laughs> you see this gray hair? <laughs> do you see this? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, we, a lot of guys want to go out and they want to plant churches, but they've not served another man. They've not served another ministry. And one of the things that God commits faithfulness, it doesn't mean you serve them for an eternity, and it doesn't mean that the pastor has ultimate authority over you. Ultimately, Jesus does. But you have to prove a trueness, a faithfulness, and whatever that looks like. It's not defined by people. It's not defined by you. It's defined by the Lord. What is his deeming of faithfulness over you? He'll tell you. But if you haven't served, people want to be entrepreneurs, but they can't show up to work on time. They want their own business, but they themselves can't even manage what's been given to them on behalf of another person. You can't show up to a job, you complain, you never do your job, you don't fulfill your job, yet you want God to commit something to you. His desire to commit something to you is there, but your problem is that the lack of faithfulness, you've not created the bridge of faithfulness in order for that to happen. By serving another person, by serving another man, another ministry. And guess what? A lot of times when you have a calling, you're going to serve the person you can't stand. You have a calling to do your own business, you're going to work for a boss that you hate. Because he's going to put you through the ringer and all this stuff's going to happen to you because God has something for you on the other side. And he is going to force you into a position of submission. This is, again, what we don't understand. I told first service, this is gospel in reality. This isn't pinwheels and cotton candy. This is what the kingdom actually looks like weaving through the lives of people. It looks like what I'm telling you. Okay? So when we do this, and so you're challenged. You're challenged to submit. You're challenged to do things. You're challenged to keep your mouth shut. All of these different things because God is putting you into a position. He's testing the weight of your character because He can't put it on you if you can't handle it. The Bible says to commit these things to faithful people who will be able to teach others. So the commitment of the kingdom is unto the faithful. How do we prove faithfulness? What is faithfulness? Faithfulness, say this with me, faithfulness is consistency over time. Faithfulness is not perfection. The kingdom is not even about perfection. The kingdom's about direction, not perfection. Every time I say that, I'm in, a, I'm in a friendly crowd here today, but I've said that before and people come up to me. It's about holiness, pastor. What are you talking about? It's not about perfection. I'm like, yeah, how's that working out for you? How's your holiness working out for you? What issues do you have that you can't reconcile? How's, how's perfection working out for you? It's not. But it is about direction, the consistency of your heart and your life over time. That's what proves faithfulness. 
So God's work does this for our hearts. Next slide. It awakens us, it trains us, it equips us. God uses it. Our work is under the Lord. This is going to free some of you going into the work week. The Bible says we don't work as unto man. We work as unto the Lord. Aren't you glad? You're like, man, I just thank Jesus. I don't work for that guy. I'm doing this job, and I'm doing it as though I'm working for the Lord. That should free you. Knowing that your inheritance comes from Him. You don't want man's promotion. You want heaven's promotion. This is the promotion you're looking for. What man gives, he can take away. What God gives, he never takes away. Gifts and callings are without repentance. God does not take away what he gives. He does not. There is no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And the Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning, which means he doesn't change his mind. So here you are. God promotes you. You're gonna, you can stay at that level. You know, maybe not get another promotion, but if he's promoted you, you will not be demoted. He doesn't take it away from you. The position that he gives you, now the influence may change, but the position that he gives you doesn't. A lot of Christians take the long way around. We take the long way around from destiny. So you need to believe God for something, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. Believing God for something. Say this with me. I need to believe God for something. And say, what do I believe God? Well, I don't know. Find something. Pick something. I can think of a lot of things, but a lot of it is relevant to you and where you're at. And so we'll talk about that in a second. But a lot of Christians, there's a long, there's a long distance between what God said and the reason that they take the long way around. God wanted to bring Israel into the promised land right away, but they wouldn't listen. They couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. A lot of times Christians take the long way around or we find ourselves wandering endlessly, going nowhere, is because we don't understand the, the simplicity of the command. God tells you to do something. Again, I'll tell you something even from my own life. Again, I, because I am a practitioner. I try. I want reality. I don't want somebody to tell me something that's just a theory or something that they think will work. I want to know that it works. I want the kingdom in reality. So Jesus said this. Well, I want to see it. I believe it. I don't need to see it before I believe it. I'll believe it and I'll press into it and I want to see it. So God will take you and we end up with a long way around. And so when I, when, if one of the things that's happened in my own life is I've asked the Lord for this and he's given me this. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You, you're saying, I want this, Lord. And he goes, great, here you go. You know what I'm saying? He gives you something that seems completely unrelated to what you asked him for. And until you do that, God began to show me, Kevin, until you do this, this is directly related to this. You're asking me for this. My pathway to get you there is through this. Whether you understand it or not, the way I'm going to work is through this. And I felt like the Lord told me very clearly, if you deny this, I will get you there, but it's going to take a lot more time. I'm going to have to reconstruct the, the, the universe or whatever, then I'm going to have to reconstruct the circumstances and the situations to create another level to get you there. So if you say, I don't want to do this, so here's what, God, here's what I'm believing God for, and he gives me this, and I go, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't feel like doing that. That is not related to what I want. You know? I'm going to, I'm going to play the baby because we all play the baby. Right? It's not what I want. This isn't what I asked for. And the Lord says, until you do that, that's not, this is going to lead you to that. And you have to accept that by faith. And so you go, not my will, your will. God, I'm going to do this because I believe that you are true and you're going to give me that. But if you get rid of that and you say, I don't want to do it, he won't make you. He won't make you. And then you'll go, but, well, you told me to do you. I'm believing you for this. Why aren't you giving me this? And he'll go, well, I told you to do this. You didn't want it. So now you're going to have to wait. Well, what am I waiting for? Well, you're waiting for the next round. What the kingdom operates through opening and closing opportunities. And so God has to allow the cycle to come to open up for you another opportunity. And while it happens for him in a moment, because he's in eternity, it takes a long time in our world. So my suggestion to you, when you're believing God for something and he hands you something that seems unrelated, but you know that God told you to do it, do it. Do not discount it. Do not discard it. Because you will not get where you want to go without taking those steps and proceeding through those processes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably because you've never believed God for anything. But if you believe God for something, you're probably going to have a relational point to what I'm talking about. 
You need to believe God for something. Say, I want to get married. You put that up there. I'm believing you to get married. And then the Lord goes, I want you to go over here and I want you to serve children or I want you to whatever. You're like, I didn't ask you for that. I asked you to get married. I want to get married. That's what I want. I didn't ask you to go over here. and I didn't ask you to open up a position or give me an opportunity to serve in the church, Jesus. I asked you to get married. What does this have to do with that? I'm not doing it. Round the mountain. Because God is going to use you to make you selfless in order to present you and prepare you for what it is He wants to give you. And if you won't do this, that's right, then the preparation work that is necessary for Him to give you this can't come because you're too self-oriented. Yeah. I want to get married. And He goes, here's a job. What? I didn't ask you for a job. I asked you to get married. Yeah, well, I want to give you a job. I don't like this job. Work the job anyway. Because I'm going to teach you humility. I'm going to teach you discipline. I'm going to teach you to keep your mouth shut. I'm going to teach you to serve. I'm going to teach you to have an income so that when you do get married, you can actually take care of the woman. Yeah. But that isn't what I'm asking him for. I'm not. I don't want that. That's what we do. That's what we do. I speak from experience. Let me help you, help you, help me, all that kind of stuff. This is what happens. Listen, guys, if you know my heart, you know one thing about me. I want to see his reality. My prayer since the time I was a young believer has been what the apostle said. Peter said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Don't you want to be an eyewitness of his majesty? I would read that and I'd go, what does that mean? We watched his majesty right in front of our eyes. And then John goes, we not only saw it, we touched it, we heard it, we felt it. We were there in the moment experiencing it with him. And I'm like, count me in. That's what I want. I don't want to sit there and theology and all of this. I'm not all in on theology, but I don't want to sit there and do all of this stuff and just be a spectator and kind of a critic and noticing everything. I want the reality of the gospel in my life and in the lives of people or I want nothing at all. I believe you said what you meant. You meant what you said and you said, you meant, you said what you meant. This is what I believe. And I believe if you said this can happen, then it can happen. And I believe if you said destiny is ours and we're overcomers and that we can write the vision and we can have it, I, I believe that if you said if we declare a matter, it can be established. I believe everything you said. But what we fail to understand is that that is the truth. But there's a process related to that truth coming into reality. They said, Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand and left. He said, I can't give you that. But as far as a position in the kingdom, are you able to drink of the cup? In other words, Jesus is like, look, what you're asking for is not a bad thing. But there's a process that's attached to it. I declare a matter and it's established. I agree with you. But what is the process that's attached to that? What is God asking you for? God's told me I'm going to get married. I believe you. I'll partner with you and I'll stand in faith with you and say, yes, Lord. But what is the process that he has given you that's attached to that? What is it? Getting rid of your old friends? Getting rid of some things in your life that shouldn't be there? Changing the level of influence that you've been drawing from? Just a thought. Just a thought. Ladies, if all of your friends are broken, bitter, divorced women, change and you're believing God to get married, it's not going to happen. Just a thought. There's another one. I had a guy one time, he tells me, he's like, oh, I'm getting, you know, my, my father's been the one giving us marriage advice. He's a Christian. His dad was Christian. I was like, yeah. And I said, What's your, what, who's your father? He's like, oh, you know. And he's like, my dad's been divorced four times. I'm like, really? So your dad's been divorced four times, and you've chosen him to be the counsel to give you advice on your marriage. Well, your dad's cut bait and run every time it's gotten hard. So why in the world is he going to tell you anything but that? It's too hard. You need to cut bait and run. Do what I did, son. Don't put up with any of that. That woman wants you to change. You don't have to change. Be a man. Get rid of her. Go find another one. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Elijah had a desire in his heart, and the Lord took notice. We're going to talk about desires. You guys, still, you guys having a good time? You having fun? So what do you do? Just come to sun, Just come to church and just have fun. Just enjoy yourself. Have a good time, learn, laugh, whatever, sing, dance. I mean, hey, whatever. It's a party. Elijah had a desire in his heart. That's how the Lord... How did God pick Elisha out of everyone that was there? I would argue with you, he had something in his heart. He wanted something more than he had. 
He was tired of living a life of rules and regulation and staring at other people's rear ends. He was tired of being the guy down the ladder that he had to look up. He had to look at the two rear ends of oxen all day. He was tired of it. And he wanted something in his own, he wanted something and he had it in his heart and he had reflected it to the Lord and the Lord found him. The eyes of the Lord learn to and fro, looking for those to whom he can show himself strong, whose hearts are fully his. So Jesus wasn't looking not just at Elisha's faithfulness, he was looking at his heart. Elisha wanted more. He was not satisfied. I told first service, why would you settle for ordinary when Jesus has given you the ability to be extraordinary? Extraordinary. An extraordinary mother, an extraordinary wife, an extraordinary businessman, an extraordinary person, an extraordinary neighbor. Pick your level of extraordinary. Whatever you want. An extraordinary world changer. Let's go all the way up there. But God has not called you to be just like everyone else. You're extraordinary. Next slide. Again, this sounds like a coaching session I just had with my son this morning. He wants to go off with his friends. And I'm like, okay, I'm, that's fine. I said, I believe you're a person of honor, Elias. I believe you're a person of integrity. I said, I'm a, I'm a, you know, that's all fine. He's like, Dad, why do you always give me I go, I'm not giving you a speech. I said, I'm just simply affirming you as I see you. You know, I'm speaking life over you. And I told him, you're not ordinary. Don't act like it. You're not ordinary. You're not like everybody else, so don't act like everybody. You're not, you know? So be above, be higher, be fuller, be faster, be whatever, wiser, stronger, be more loving, pick one. What do you want? Here's the thing. I'm going to settle right here. What do you want? So here we go. We're going to talk about desires. So here's Elisha. He has a desire. He's held something up before the Lord. And he probably, he probably had heard of Elijah because he knew who Elijah was. He didn't have to go, who are you? What are you doing here? He probably had a heart that said, man, I'd love to be used in a way like that. That guy, Elijah, he's amazing. I'd like to be a prophet like him. I'd like to see miracles. He, whatever his desire was, he had a desire, and God brought it right to him. And the reason that desire found him was because Elisha knew his desire. I'll leave it right there. I'll let you guys think about that for a minute. What does that mean? So let me ask you two dangerous questions. What do you want? Most dangerous question you could ask is what do you want? What is it that you want? What are you looking for? What do you seek? What do you want? And then the second question is why do you want it? Most people don't want to do the problem. They don't want to do this because this requires wrestling. This requires an internal wrestling that becomes uncomfortable. Because you're not going to find out what you want in a day. You're not going to find out what you want in an hour. It may not even be a week. It took me a while. And then once I figured out what it is that I wanted, then I figured out why I wanted it, and then I break it down into what my core motivations are, and now all of a sudden I know my core motivations, and my whole life is filtered through core motivations. Wouldn't that be great? Right? Wouldn't that be great? And so I've journeyed this way, and probably in order that you might benefit from this brutal journey that I've been on. And so, but most people don't want to ask the questions, what do you want? What do you want? I want to be married, Lord. Why? Well, because I want to be married. Because I don't want to be alone. Because I don't want this. I don't want that. And we got all these really crude. No, really, Kevin, why do you want to be married? Why? Well, and you have to be honest, because this is where it all gets vulnerable. We don't like vulnerability, okay? We don't want to be vulnerable. I want to get married because I really feel like I have a lot of love in my heart and I have something to give to some other person. Oh, wow. Now we're into the beauty of the moment, aren't we? Now we're really exposing a person for who they are. Well, I want to get married because I don't want to be alone. No, I want to get married because your love is in my heart and your love is in my heart so fully that I want to share this love with someone else and I want that, I want that sort of mutual exchange. Oh, you see the difference? There's a huge difference. I want a million dollars. Why do you want a million dollars? Because I want a million dollars. I want to be financially secure. Well, your, your answer is not good enough. You're going to have to do better. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to do better. Well, why do I want a million dollars, Lord? You told me I could have a million dollars. I'm just throwing stuff out here. Why, why, why do I want a million dollars? I'll give you a key. One of the biggest keys is asking the Holy Spirit, what is it that I want? So first of all, it's asking yourself what you want. Then the second one is asking the Holy Spirit what you want. And here again, this becomes vulnerable. You're going to feel vulnerable. You're going to feel because the desires of your heart are innately related to your creation as a person. And you are going to feel very, very vulnerable. 
I just gave a prophetic word to this architect just out of the blue. I was there and I was meeting with this architect. And I just, I said, this is who you are. I just told her. I said, I see you as this. This is what the Lord sees you. She was asking me some stuff. And I just said, yeah, I'll give you, I go, let me tell you what the Lord says to you. And I told her. And she just was like this. And I said, what's, I go, uh, I go, I go, you, you all right? You know, like, are you going to have a problem with what I said? And she goes, no, I just feel completely exposed. I feel completely vulnerable. Because, like, you're tapping who I really am. You know, and that's actually what the Bible says in Corinthians. The secrets of the heart are exposed. The desires of the heart are revealed through prophetic word. One of the ways. But what do you want? Why do you want it? You have to ask the Lord what you want. What do I want, Lord? What is it that I want? I'll give you a better one. I don't know where it is on my list. I'll give you this one. Frustration is an unawakened desire. Say this with me. You need to get this one. Say it with me. Frustration is an unawakened desire. So let's just bring it into the marriage. My wife's frustrated with me. She thinks I'm the problem. She's very frustrated with me. Her frustration is not with me. Her frustration is, is because she has a desire that's not awakened or not realized. So why is she frustrated with me? Because she'd like to spend time with me. Well, that's a desire. Why is she frustrated with me? Because she'd like me to, uh, to speak kindly to her, whatever it is. And so she's just projecting her frustration and her anger at me without actually realizing her desire and communicating that back to me. Do you understand? A lot of you, you're frustrated with your job. You're frustrated. Well, what are you frustrated? What is the root of your frustration? Why are you frustrated? This is where it gets really really messy, but this is how life is formed in the spirit. I would have frustrations in my own life, okay? All of these things, whatever, God has told me certain things, you know, and if you you need to let him speak over you, you can be in the same realm. God tells you things, all these things, and I have these frustrations in my heart. They're there. Anybody know what I'm, you're frustrated with your life? You're frustrated with your future? Why am I frustrated? Because there's an unawakened desire. Some of you feel pressure to do something, but that's, and, you, and so you feel frustrated because you're being forced to do something because in your heart, that's not really what you want to do. Or that's not really where you want to go. And so you have to realize, why am I being frustrated here? Because that is not really where I want my heart to be. That is not really what I want to be doing right now, but I feel pressured and pushed to do something that I don't really want to do. And so I would be frustrated, and I would feel this, and I felt like the Lord was dealing with me. And I'd be angry, and I'd be like, you know, my frustration, complaints go up, okay? So I would complain to the Lord. Lord, go, why are you frustrated? And I'd go, I have no idea. I just feel frustrated. And he started dealing with me on what I want. What do you want, Kevin? What is it that you want? And then I'd be like, well, what is it that I'm actually asking for here? I'm asking for this, but what does this actually mean? Does this, what does this mean? And he would show me what it meant. And I would say, and, I, and I'd say, do I want, I started asking the Holy Spirit, what do I want? Do I want success? And it would be like, no, success isn't really, I mean, success, whatever, but it wasn't really what I felt connected to. And so I went down this process of elimination, and the first thing he showed me was, you want significance. And I was like, I do want significance. You're right. <laughs> he said, you want to do something that matters, and you don't want to do anything that doesn't matter. And you don't want to waste your time on things that don't matter. And I was like, I want significance. And then I felt like he started showing me. And again, there's a process to this of questions and answering. And I'm like, what is it that I'm wanting here, Lord? What is it that I'm working for here, Lord? And I felt like the Lord showed me, you want legacy. You're looking for something that goes beyond your own life. And I'm like, I do want something that goes beyond my own life. (laughs) And then he told me, you want influence. Because I started thinking, well, what is it that I want? Like, okay, I'll give you an example, and it sounds vain, but, you, but we'll work it out. Okay, we're going to work it out. So it's like, I want to be known, but what does that mean, that I want to be known? What is it that, I'm at, that I want? Is it, do I want fame? And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not looking for fame. I don't need autobiography. I don't need any of that. What, so what is it that I want? And the Lord told me, you want influence. And I'm like, I do want influence. I want an ability to influence the direction of things. So now I've distilled not just what I want, but I've distilled three core values or three cores about my being. I want, I want influence, I want significance, and I want legacy. And everything in my life is filtered through that. All of the decisions that I make, all of the ways that I lead this church, I filter it through those decisions. Is this going to create significance? Is this a significant thing to do? Because if it's not, let's go fishing. 
Is this something that can produce legacy beyond the lifespan of a, of a generation? Is this something that is influential or can turn the direction of things? You see? And so that, what do you want? Well, some of you, you have compassion. So you, have a, you, you mine this up and you realize, wow, I just, what do I, want? I really want to help people. Why do you want to help people? I don't know. I just want to help people. I just want to help them. Well, you got to go a little deeper because what you want to do is you want to distill it down. Well, you have compassion. So does this release compassion out of my life? So you might, maybe it's mercy, whatever it is, leadership, I don't know, family, unity. But these are things that you have to do. Am I making sense at all to any of you? Any, one person at least. <laughs> we have to ask what we want. Okay, I told first service, this is Tony Robbins gold right here. This, I'm not Tony Robbins, and this definitely doesn't come from Tony Robbins, but people pay thousands of dollars to sit and hear Tony Robbins, and this is beyond anything that I've ever received from any kind of coaching session because this stuff comes from God's design. It's how we're made. And we have to ask ourselves, what do you want? What do you want? What, what is it that I want? What is it that I want from my marriage? What is it that I want from my job? What is it I want from my future? What is it that I want from my faith? What is it that I want from my finances? What is it that I want from my friendships? Those are five key areas of your life. Those are the manageable areas of your life. Every other area, those are where all the major decisions are made. And every other area is spent around those five. Your faith, your family, your finances, your friendships, and your future. Those are the five key areas of a person's life. And if you don't have answers in those areas, you're going to live a life of a lot of confusion. And do you have answers in all of them? No, but I have answers in a few of them. I'm probably three and a half. I got a couple of them I'm not too sure about yet, but I'm working on them, right? But you get answers. What do I want in the area of my faith? Who do I want to be? What do I want to see? What is it that I'm desiring? What does that look like? What does the area of my faith even mean? This is stuff that requires work from you, and it's going to require time from you. And it's not like sit down and do it, but it needs to be an ongoing meditation within your life. And you need to write this stuff down. Lord, what do I want? What do I want? Who am I? What do you want me to be? What does this mean? You have to stop seeing the Lord. So the, the vision of God comes through intimacy. And you have to stop seeing the Lord as distant. You have to start seeing him near, real, and relational. A lot of Christians see God as abstract. He's just there, the abstract God out there. The God that I know, the big man upstairs, this, you know, over here, he's out there. God's not abstract. He's near and he's relational. Then you have to see yourself in light of him. Not as you believe you are, so not as who you perceive yourself as, but who he says you are. That's a difference. You have to relate to him under the understanding that he sees you as a son and a daughter. If you don't see yourself that way, you need to make that alignment then we have another group that thinks it's all about them. God just exists to bless them at all times. You know, God is my, I'm part of the, ble- you know, well, we are a bless me club. Jesus is the blesser, and I'll absolutely agree with that. But they think that everything's about me, and nothing requires my submission, and nothing requires my servitude. Well, that's the wrong answer, too. You have to mind the frustration within your heart. So when you're feeling frustrated, anybody feeling frustrated at all? A few of you? You have to mind that frustration. What am I frustrated? Why am I frustrated? And you're going to get frustrated with the answers, but you've got to keep pressing in. Mining is hard work. Mining is dangerous work. A lot of stuff can go wrong. Okay? Mining is also dirty work and sweaty and all that stuff, but you've got to go into that frustration and go, what is, why am I frustrated? Why do I want it? Is it kingdom aligned? And then condense it to three or four core motivators. Last slide. We're going to take communion. Thank you for being patient. Here's your homework. Ready? Question one. You should write it down. Say this with me. The dullest pencil is greater than the sharpest mind. I don't care how sharp your mind is. When, when points are made, this is a transformative point I'm giving you. These are transformative points I'm giving you. So you need to write it down. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Number two, why do you want it? And you cannot be satisfied with these simplistic answers. Well, I want it just because I want it. And again, I told first service, the emotional intelligence of the church has to rise. Okay? We cannot be emotional infants. We cannot be spiritual infants. We have to grow up at some point and like put on big boy clothes and begin to walk out our faith as, as, the, as the children and sons and daughters that we are. And we have to ask the hard questions. What is it that I want and why do I want it? 
and to find two or three desires. What is it that I want? Well, I want this, I want this, and I want this. Well, what's the relationship point between all these three things? Why do you want them? Why do I want them? Then you start distilling it. And then you start aligning them with kingdom motivators. What, is the, what would the Lord have? So I have a desire to make money. So you know, there are people that are gifted to make money. God has not shortchanged his church. And there are people that seemingly have the Midas touch. They can make money. They just walk around, boom, they make money. They make money. And they think, I'm just, that's my gift. No, your gift is to make money to propagate the gospel. Your gift is not just to make money. Your gift is to make money to fund and fuel the gospel. That's what they dissociate with. No, it's true. That's yeah, true, absolutely. And so we see that a lot, you know. I was watching a show about politics, and um, not that I care about politics, but what I was watching is these major donors to these political campaigns. So it's a documentary, both Democrat, Republican, so I'm not getting, you know, I don't want to get into any of that. But what I was looking at is what was the motivation of these donors, and they, they said that because, they, so the lady asked her, asked the guy, so because you make a lot of money in this country, um, politicians feel that they have the right to come to you and ask you for it. And the guy said, yeah, absolutely. And I feel that it's my duty, my privilege, and my honor to give it. And I told my wife, there are people within the church that make a lot of money, you know? And it's like, I, first of all, I don't have any problem asking for it. <laughs> because it's, it, is, it is their duty, it is their honor, and it is their responsibility to fund it and to fuel it. God has blessed you. You have an ability to make money. You're making great money. Now, you know, we can scale it out, but there are, there are significant donors, there are significant people within the kingdom. And more often than not, and I'm just going to be clear with you, the significant wealth, wealthy person gives far less on a percentage than does the average Christian. How do you know? Because I've met more than one. You know, they give 1%, 2%, whatever. Oh, I gave 200 this week. Yeah, okay. I gave 5,000 last year, Pastor. Yeah, you don't look like a guy that lives on 50 grand. Sorry. Three houses, two cars, boats, the whole thing. But you get, oh, God, excuse me while I bow to you while, because you gave $5,000. Well, I got people that give more than that and they make less than you, way less. Anyway, another story. But we need to find out what the core motivators are. What is it that you have? Why are you doing it? What is it that you want? What are the motivators? What's driving you? It's going to change you. And it's going to teach you your yes from your no. If you're a person that's driven by mercy, compassion, unity, if those are your values, then, you're not good, then anything that produces a unified feeling and your unified uh, presence in your life, you should move towards it. If you're a merciful person and you like to be kind and you like to just be generous, then you should f- move into those areas that, that allow you to be generous and move away from areas that are not generous or move away from people that are not generous. You see the difference? And what it begins to do is it begins to narrow your path and it begins to orient you more with your created design. Yeah. So bring your line into those coordinators. Ask, seek, and knock according to those motivators. What do you want? I'll just tell you a real simple one and we're going to close. And we're going to take communion. So I'm believing God that this church is going to influence the city, the county, the nation, the world, the Caribbean, wherever, whatever. So I'm believing God. Give me the mountain, Jesus. <laughs> So I'm asking God for something great. And he goes, do a school. And I'm like, are you flipping kidding me? You want me to do a school? Or you want us to do a school? And so I'm just telling you the journey. This is what I want. I want Elevate to be this, and I want us to be able to do this, and this is what I want to see happen, and whatever. And he says, do that. And I'm like, what does this, I'll just give you one of the many, what does th- this is one we'll probably all relate to because I've talked about it. What does this have to do with this? You know, and so the Lord showed me, this is my path to give you that. You're asking me for this. I'm giving you this. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to draw you into it and all this other stuff. Because I knew what was required of me, was required of us. And we're in the process of this. So pray. We have a meeting on Tuesday for the school. So pray for that. And I hope to update you. But I didn't get any update last week. So I couldn't update you any further. But, you know, so it's like something, so it's something related to that. You understand what I'm saying? All right. Anyway, I'll close. I'm going on. I'm reading. So we're going to take communion. So, and we're going to close right here. Anytime I do stuff about vision and mining the heart, I'm never quite sure how it's received. So I pray you receive this well, and I pray you do the work, and I pray you begin to go home and even start a journal about what it is that you want and beginning to just refine the things that you want. One of the things that Jesus wants is for us to take communion together. 
And you say, well, what does this mean? It's a symbol of our unity. The word itself means common unity. We're from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different social classes, uh, financial, whatever it may be. We're all different. But our common union is through the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That's our common union. We come together in common union. Communion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this together, and this is what's called a pedagogue. One of the things God gave within the prophets is he told them to do certain acts. They were called prophetic acts. The word is called pedagogue, and it means to act out. And so this is an acting out of something. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to pray real quick, and then if you would do as you just make your way around and grab the, the, the cracker and grab the juice and bring it back to you, and we're going to take it together. But let's just pray over this time. So Father, we just thank you so much for this time. We ask that you would bless this time, us together as a family, that you would bless the sharing of this together, that you would signify it as well within our hearts. And if you've never received Jesus and you don't know if you know in Christ, this is a great moment. You can receive Christ through, through, through just the prayer, through the act of the exchange of the heart. And you can do it even through the exchanging of communion. And so, Father, we want to bless this time together and we want to honor you in all that we do. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So just make your way around and grab it.